Our sermon today comes, as we mentioned at the beginning of the service, from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. And I will read it again, and I will read it correctly this time. Um, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can gather here. And as we gather and look into your word, would you give us clarity? Would you help us to see clearly? In such a difficult week with so many things going on, in the Middle East and in Central America and in Asia and Africa, we look to you. We look to you, the only one whom we can trust. We trust in your promises. Give us wisdom and give us clarity. And as we look into your word, help us to see you more clearly and help us to see this world with clarity. We cry out with those that have cried out before, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We look to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I will repeat my announcement. It is cold in here. You are not wrong. Um, our boiler is broken. And for that, I am sorry. It's not my fault, but I am sorry. Uh, please sit closer together, or maybe we can keep praying. And then, I don't know. Uh, when I was a kid, actually, our heater broke. I think I was like, I must have been 12 or 13. Um, and we grew up in the south side of Chicago, so it got pretty chilly. It was around this time. And uh, we couldn't afford a repair person to come. And so my mom just kind of sat me down and said, well, you better fix it. Um, and so then I went to the heater. It was a gas heater in our garage. And I opened it. And I just stared at it for like two hours. Um, and there was a piece that was, looked kind of broken. And so I was like, I think this is it. So I took it off. And then we drove over to a hardware store, and they replaced it and gave it to us. And we came back, and we put it on, and the heater worked. Those two hours, I mostly spent praying, because <laughs> if I didn't fix it, my mom was going to be mad. And, and that's just not good. Now that I'm an adult, I would not recommend letting a 12-year-old fix your gas heater. All right, um, That was more out of necessity, uh, but God is good. <laughs> uh, I have that clarity now, but in that moment, it was that... I looked at it and it just, something clicked. Um, have you had that experience? Or you look at something, I, I had that experience too when looking at differential equations. I've forgotten most of it now, uh, as you should with differential equations unless you're an engineer really. Um, but have you ever looked at something and gone to a point of clarity, something makes sense? I thought about the age that we live in. It's a confusing time. It's a time where deception is rampant. It is hard to discern truth from error. But this, of course, is not just our time. Deception has been an enemy as old as the garden. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. It is a continuation of last week's sermon on joy. But what we see today in Philippians is that Paul ties joy and truth and salvation together. And he does it in an interesting way because joy and truth are not separated ideas. Paul calls them to be a people of joy, not just 
in a moment, but as their character. And Paul now begins to shift their understanding of reality and the lens by which they interpret themselves in the entirety of life. Our hope in this sermon is to see, by the relationship of the joy and the truth that we see clearly in the Bible, we'll be able to see ourselves more clearly and the world more clearly. And we'll discuss this within the framework that's presented in Philippians. And it's three points. First, verse 1, the fruit of joy. Second, verse 2, the enemy of joy. And third, which is the third verse, the power of joy. And in doing so, we hope to see through the lens of the gospel and of scripture clearly who we are and clearly how we should understand the world. So first, the fruit of joy. This point was supposed to be then last week, but the sermon was so long that I had to shift it. So verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Out of all the things that Paul could have said following a command to rejoice, it seems particularly odd that he would write about safety. Last week we talked about when he says the same things to you, he's talking about joy, because joy is constantly repeated through the letter. In the verses that follow this, immediately he talks to them about sound doctrine. And so what he's doing is he's relating three basic ideas. Safety, truth, and joy. The word here that's used for safety can mean stability, certainty, peace. And so here we see three ideas. Truth, joy, and safety or strength. To really communicate this, we first have to relate the ideas of joy and truth as they're presented in the Bible. We see that in Psalm 19.8. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We see another similar idea in Psalm 119, verses 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Paul is about to warn them about those that aim to confuse their doctrine. Before he gets to them, to that, he reminds them to rejoice, to rejoice in the true knowledge of God. The precepts of the Lord, the psalmist reminds us, are a delight to us. There is a relationship between truth and joy. They go hand in hand. To know God truly is to delight in him. That's what the psalmist presents. But it is also important to relate the aspect of joy and stability or security, because that's what he says. To repeat the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. So if you're talking about joy, why bring safety and stability and strength into it? In chapter one, verse 27, Paul commands them, stand firm in the gospel. Paul charged them to that. The command here to rejoice is meant to give them stability in the midst of external pressures and internal tensions. You see that in the book of Nehemiah 8.10. In Nehemiah, the people had built the wall. They had completed it. But what's going on is there is a fear within the city. So there's tension within the people and there's pressures from outside forces. When they complete the wall, they come to a celebration, but the people are afraid and they're sorrowful. 
And then Nehemiah stands up and says this, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The biblical theme that we see in Nehemiah and it happens again in Habakkuk, they face the external pressure of building a wall. So what does Nehemiah tell them when they are grieved? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy provides stability to weakened hearts. The fruit of joy, as Paul is presenting it, is strength. It's stability. In the midst of the uncertainty of the world, that's what Paul reminds them of. That is why it's no trouble for him, and it is safe for them. The biblical theme being that those who are disheartened by external pressures or internal tensions to turn to the Lord in joy. To those that are tempted to lose heart, to rejoice in the Lord who is their strength. It is not a delusion to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of pressures. But to the Christian, it is a strength. They face many obstacles. The temptation would be either to despair, to grow better, or by their own efforts to alleviate the pressure that they face. Rather, Paul calls them to stand firm in the gospel. And this command of joy serves as the means by which they stand firm. It gives them stability. The joy of the Lord is their strength. To a people who are being tossed around by the hardships, he reminds them to rejoice, not in a superficial way like we talked about last week, not just pretending that there's nothing wrong. They can be the people of joy because of what God has done. The call to rejoice here, what we see, is a stability for them. The fact that they are in the Lord fuels their joy, and this joy is a strength to them in the midst of pressures. They cannot be tempted by pleasure because the full satisfaction of their hearts is found in Christ alone. So neither can the cares of this life nor the deceitfulness of momentary pleasure diminish their joy in Christ. But that also means that neither can the worries of this life and the pressure of pain diminish their resolve. Joy is the fruit, I mean the strength is the fruit of joy because it's closely tied to the one who brings strength, to Jesus. It is what a Christian hears to plant both feet solidly on the ground and say, here I stand on Christ the solid rock. The joy of the Lord was their strength and it is our strength as well, not to be detached from the hardness of life, but it is what gives us courage to face it. The command has an effect on the life of the Christian the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our identity in Christ shapes the way that we face trials because we face trials with joy. The fruit of joy is strength. Joy in knowing God truly and delighting because of Jesus and in Jesus, like we talked about last week. And that is the strength for the Christian. But if that is the fruit of joy, then what is the enemy of joy? And why does he go from a command to rejoice to three commands to beware. And so we go to verse two, and it says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul 
compares the command to rejoice with, with warnings. Other translations say, beware, beware of. And it says it three times. These, unlike the command to rejoice, do have an implication in the beginning and continuing an action. What Paul is saying, beware. So like right now, look out. Like if I said, look over there. And everybody looked over there. That's what he's saying. Beware and continue bewaring. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Be aware and be ready. If the previous verse clarified that joy and sound doctrine brings stability and security, here we see what threatens that. He uses three faces that begin escalating of the things which the Philippians should be vigilant against. First, he calls them beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, and finally, of the mutilators of the flesh. And here is where we have to do some explanation. Paul is most likely talking about what was referred to in that time as the Judaizers or the circumcision party. So if you're wondering why during the scripture reading you heard the word circumcision so much, that is why. Because it is tied with what we're talking about here. The circumcision party were those that in the early time of the church believed in Jesus, but also said that Gentile converts had to follow the law of Moses and be physically circumcised in order to be righteous. That in order for them to be justified before God, they not only had to have faith, they had to add something to it. Um, so the question began to circulate. The passage that we read in Acts 15 is how the Jerusalem Council, which is the early leaders of the church, addressed that problem. And it came to them when Peter stood up and responded that we don't add things to justification by faith, but both Jew and Gentile are justified in Jesus Christ by faith. It is not a matter of external rights or signs. This, of course, did not resolve the issue, but it would be a continual problem, especially for Paul, as he confronted these false teachers throughout the churches. The problem with the circumcision party philosophy is that they added things to what it means to be a Christian. They would say, yes, you have faith, but you should obey this external law, and you should do this, and you should do that. And they would add stipulation upon stipulation in order for Gentile believers to know that they are justified. They added things to the gospel, and that's what Paul warns them about. The reason we can presume that he's talking about the circumcision party is because of the three phrases that he uses. First, he calls them dogs. So if you remember in the gospels, Jesus said, when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, it is not proper to give the children's bread to the dogs. Now, Jesus did not think she was a dog. But he was using the common term that Jewish people used for Gentiles. They called them dogs. Right? That was the term that was used. So first, Paul begins to flip it on his head, and he says... These he calls the dogs. He goes on to say evildoers. And this, again, is another play on words. Throughout the Psalms, you hear of the, those who have, are full of iniquity, those who do evil. And then what he's referring to is those who are the enemies of the covenant people, the people of God. So he's using first dogs, then evildoers. And so you might say, like, that doesn't necessarily mean the circumcision party, but the Third is what brings it all together, the mutilators of the flesh. The reason that's important 
is that it's a reference to 1 Kings 18, when the prophets of Baal would cut themselves when they were praying to God. He doesn't say those who circumcise. He says those who mutilate the flesh. What they're doing is cutting. He is emphasizing, right, the ritualistic cutting in order to bring justification. Like the prophets of Baal would cut themselves on Mount Carmel to be heard by their God. There are those who are promoting a false gospel and a false justification. They have taken something and twisted it like so many lies are a twisting of the truth. And that is what Paul warns them about after he tells them to rejoice. Why? In Galatians 6, we see an interesting insight which we read. Galatians 6.12 says this, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The false theology that they were teaching had a consequence. They were promising a solution. The Philippians are under direct and immediate pressure. Philippi was a Roman colony reestablished by citizens after the war that Augustus had, okay? That's why when Paul goes there and he says, I am a Roman citizen, they're terrified. Philippi loved Rome. The people that lived there loved the praise that came from Rome. They loved honor and respect. And now they are being persecuted for their faith. They stand outside of the group. The temptation would be to do things to come under an umbrella by which they can be protected instead of trusting in the Lord. And so Paul warns them, there will be those that come and tell you that if you do this, it will be a solution to your problems. Because in that time, Judaism was a religio licita. It was a protected religion. So if they were to be circumcised, then they could be protected from those that were oppressing them. That is the danger of falsehood. The false gospel, right, what he's telling them to be aware of is those who promise alleviation from their external suffering by falsehood. The Philippians are commanded to beware of those who are promising something they cannot possibly keep. The issue being that because of the fear of man and of death, the Philippians would be led astray by deceitful words to compromise. And in verse 127, they were challenged to stand firm. Remember, the command of joy holds the promise of satisfaction and strength that is only found in Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But here we see Paul bringing up another supplementary command. Beware of those that are trying to steal your joy through falsehood. The enemy of joy is falsehood. It is a false sense of reality and a false gospel that promises strength and security that it cannot possibly keep. False gospels always promise something, similar to the idea of counterfeit joys. But remember, joy and truth go hand in hand. I should go like this, hand in hand. False gospels always promise a false joy 
and false truths always promise a false safety. But there are consequences to believing lies. Here, that is why Paul warns them. He's talking about the threat of adulteration of the gospel, which will lead people away from the truth of the justification we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what he gets to for the rest of chapter 3. I know, we're going to get to it at some point, right? But it's already this long with three verses, right? (laughs) I went really long last week with just one verse. When I was in high school, I was in a photography class. And uh, I'm a terrible photographer, right? And it was black and white, so it was like the, it was film. So I would go and I would take pictures. And what I could never get right was how to coordinate the lens so my pictures wouldn't come out blurry. They were always blurry. Like uh, my professor even wrote that. He said, you take good pictures, but they're always blurry. And no matter how much I worked with putting in the chemicals and balancing it out when you're doing the light thing, it always came out blurry, right? Falsehood blurs our vision. The Bible actually goes a step further and says that those who believe lies are actually blind, unable to see the truth. But falsehoods can blur vision. They can blind you. And we're not completely immune from the lies of this age. Falsehood blurs vision. I have seen, I haven't lived forever, but I've seen how different lies tempt those who are different life stages from different backgrounds with different jobs and different situations. We can hear lies about our identity, about our purpose, about that which will satisfy our hearts, about our goals, about our calling, about others, about ourselves, about other groups of people or countries or places or cities or jobs. The Proverbs warn us not to be wise in our own eyes. The Bible reminds us that our point of reference and interpretation is not ourselves and our knowledge, but from God and from his self-disclosure. Do we get a lens and a picture of what is actually real? But if we were to trust in ourselves and have a skewed understanding of reality, we begin to blame others and believe in lies. We can blame a litany of things in order to resolve a skewed sense of reality. Some people blame relativism or objectivism, existentialism, pragmatism, racism, or a list of other isms that can fill our mouths. And it has become increasingly difficult, even through the news, to discern truth from error. And yet Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. Pilate before the cross asked, what is truth? We are not the first people to think deeply about things. And deception is an enemy as old as the garden. And its whispers are still heard. Our denomination has something called the Book of Church Order, which I particularly like, but most people find boring. But I like it. And one of its initial principles is this. Godliness is founded on truth. We must seek truth. And that truth is found in scripture. If we live in a time where it is difficult to discern truth from error, and although that is not a new enemy, but an ancient one, how then do we discern? Where else shall we go? One of the clearest and most poignant applications is that we depend on God, and God has spoken. 
His words and character are recorded for us in the writings of the Old and the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible deals with reality and it talks about real things. And because it is able to teach, reproof, and correct, we must value it embrace it and cherish it because in it we see the truth and in it we are corrected of falsehood we are taught about what is real we are rerooted in the areas in which we are wrong and we are corrected and we grow we must run to scripture christians must understand what it is that we believe and the system of doctrines that is taught in scripture We must be a people of one book because there is much falsehood. That does not mean we disengage from this age. I'm not saying you don't listen to the radio. I don't know if people even listen to the radio. I don't know, that. like listen to Spotify. I don't know what people listen to or a podcast. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you don't watch movies, although some movies you definitely should not watch. What I'm asking is what fills your mind? What is it And what is the lens by which you look at the world and reality? Are we self-referential in that we interpret everything around us by what we think is real? Or do we interpret things and reality through the lens of scripture? What is it that fills our minds? That's what Paul is warning them about. Rejoice in the Lord and beware of falsehood. Are we a people that are wise in our own eyes? Or do we look to God? Do we call out to Christ and look in the scriptures? Paul warns them that falsehood can steal their joy because the enemy of joy is falsehood. Peter in John 14 says, John, sorry, John 6 says, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where do you go for truth? Where do you go for reality? So, if the fruit of joy is strength, if the enemy of joy is falsehood, what is the power of joy? And we look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So if we have strength and satisfaction and joy through truth, There are those that through falsehood aim to provide a counter security and satisfaction. How then does Paul proceed? He begins with a stunning declaration. He says, for we are the circumcision. And then he adds three qualifiers. The statement here that we are the circumcision is stunningly profound. And it can be only understood within the larger biblical narrative. And there's so much to talk about that I have to say it so briefly. Um, And so I will give a brief summary on when it says to be the circumcision, what does it mean within the biblical witness? The phrase to be the circumcision was a metonym to mean the covenant people. What do I mean? The sign of circumcision was first given to Abraham in Genesis 17. The promise was given in Genesis 15. The Romans passage, which we read earlier, Romans 4.11, emphasizes that this external act serves as a sign and seal of the covenant. It was a physical reminder to the people of Israel that they were God's 
covenant people. Sign and seal language is a language that we borrow from Romans, and it talks about baptism and the Lord's Supper within the Westminster Catechism. Circumcision would become especially focused not only during the time of Abraham, but even after in the law of Moses when it was brought into the law. It, it is within the Mosaic law what signifies the covenant people. Although it has to be noted, it is not only an ethnic sign, but a religious one. Proselytes, people who are outside of the people of Israel, could be circumcised and welcomed into the covenant people. Similarly, those who were not circumcised would be excluded from the covenant people. That's what it says in the law of Moses. Circumcision and covenant people became so closely associated in the time of Paul that when people said, we are the circumcision, what they are saying is, we are the people of God. We are God's covenant people upon whose grace and mercy and love and peace rest. So when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he is speaking to Gentile converts in Philippi, and he himself is a Jew saying, we are the circumcision. We are the covenant people. And then he brings three descriptions. First has to do with worship. He says, we are the covenant people who worship God by his spirit. Paul writes that the covenant people worship or other translations take it to mean minister by the spirit of God. What is being emphasized is that worship or service, which marks their identity, is not by their own prompting, but out of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer in such a way as to ascribe majesty and glory to God rightly because he is worthy to be praised. It can also have the understanding of the whole life of the believer. What Paul is saying when he says we worship by the Spirit of God, one, he puts the focus externally. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts that we may worship and minister to God. So what does it mean to be the covenant people? It is those whom the Holy Spirit has effectually called or regenerated, justified, adopted, and in the process of sanctification, worship God and minister to him in the whole of their lives. That's what it means to be the circumcision. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on by making the focus on Jesus. He says, those who glory or boast or rejoice in Christ Jesus, again, Focusing not internally, but externally, right? The boast is not in what they can do or what they have done or what they will do. Their boast is Jesus Christ. And what will become clear in the following verses for the rest of the chapter is the focus on Christ and his sacrifice. It is not glorifying in all of they know and all they have done, but their strength and ability and joy comes in Jesus Christ. Their boast is not in the flesh, which is the third. No confidence in the flesh. Flesh, believe it or not, has a wide semantic range in the Bible. In 1 John 3, flesh, it says, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In Colossians 1, it says, Paul suffered in the flesh. In that sense, flesh isn't evil, Flesh is just physical. It is the body. Flesh can also have the connotation of being associated with sin. It says, do not walk according to the flesh, walk according to the spirit. But here, what is actually being done 
is separating, right? Flesh can serve a comparative sense in what is done physically and humanly and what only God can do. So not only are those who are the circumcision welcome because the Holy Spirit works in their heart in such a way that they can worship God. Their only boast and confidence comes from God. Their boast and confidence is not in what they can do. Flesh is emphasizing the difference between physical and spiritual, between earthly and human, human and that which is heavenly and godly. They do not boast in their own efforts or strengths. They don't boast in their own circumstance or ability. The boast is in Jesus Christ and they worship by the Spirit of God. The confidence in the flesh would emphasize human efforts and boast in comparisons to the true spiritual achievements which are found in Christ. For example, it would be those that pat themselves on the back because of all they've done. The true circumcision, as he says it here, are those that boast in Christ Jesus. But what is the pattern in all three? It is something that Paul is about to spend several verses elaborating, to be found in Christ and Christ alone. These are not things they had to do in order to be the circumcision. These are not things they had to do in order to be the covenant people. Those are things which are because of what God has done. The Judaizers, or the circumcision party, promise something on what they can't deliver. The gospel delivers on what it promises. The thing about the falsehood that's being warned about in verse two is that they're promising something. And what Paul does is saying, all these things that they're promising are already yours in Christ Jesus. False gospels or truths not only offer a counterfeit joy, but a counterfeit identity. This is who they are objectively because their identity is external to themselves. It is found in Christ Jesus. They are not just who they think they are. They are not just who others say that they are, but they are who God says they are. Whether it's worship or boasting or confidence, the point of focus is on God. The temptation of false gospels and counterfeit joys is to provide fiction as an identity. That's what Paul is addressing. But what he will say in the rest of the verses is that false gospels cannot deliver on the fraudulence, but godliness is founded on truth. Truth brings joy and joy found in Christ, in Christ alone. The fruit of joy is strength. The enemy of joy is falsehood. So truth brings strength and joy. The power of that truth is because of the foundation that we have in the work of Christ. The power of joy is not a power that we have in joy, but the power behind joy is Jesus and his work. That's what Paul gets to in Philippians 3. Truth is not subjective. Truth is what God says it's true. It is founded on Christ and his work. It makes the point of interpretation not ourselves, but Jesus. That's why deception is an enemy as old as the garden. When temptation came in the garden, man had a choice to either trust themselves as a point of reference, as it says in Romans 1, or to trust the words of God. 
what Paul is reminding them of is that the point of reference is Jesus, is God and who he has revealed himself to be in the world. Who are we? That's a question I've asked myself since my 20s. Who am I really? I'm a Guatemalan immigrant who moved to the south side of Chicago. I went to a Korean church for like 10 years. I was confused. Who am I? Who are we? Are we our jobs? Are we just our relationships or who we're associated with? Are we the families that we're born in? Not that those are unimportant and not that I don't, like, I don't want to get into identity politics, but who are we? Paul here places objective reality within experiential religion. We, who are we? We are those who worship God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who do not trust in the flesh. We are God's covenant people. Here, what the Bible is emphasizing is not just that this is a title, but that this title carries promises, that the promises of God are ours and our confidence is on his promises and not in our ability. And he will elaborate that further in verses 4 through 11. But here, the argument begins. First of all, we are who God says we are. Um, and that's just true. We are who God says we are. The temptation for them and for us is to find our identity in what others say about us or what society says about us or even what we say about ourselves. But here, Paul makes an incredible stamp and declaration by saying, we are the circumcision. We are the people of God redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those who are in Christ Jesus are adopted by God and receive all the benefits therein by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Where have you allowed false identities to infiltrate your own self-conception? How have falsehoods stolen your joy? Do you believe the truth? What is it that fills our minds and lives? I know this is, a God, this is a sermon on joy, and it doesn't seem very joyful, but godliness is founded on truth. And we have a joy in Christ Jesus. Because the response to this isn't just to grit our teeth and conceive of joy springing forth from our hearts. The solution is placed outside of ourselves, and it's fixed on Christ Jesus. As we talked about last week, the command of joy has to do with character. And that's further emphasized here. Because the joy that we're called to have is in the Lord. It is something that is worked out in us as we see here rooted and grounded. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. How can we stand when things are tossing around? When we ourselves don't feel strong emotionally? When our family is weakened? How do we stand when there's problems in our country and in our city and in our community, when there are worries of money and health and problems? We stand because we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and he's the one that brings joy. The point of reference of the world and of reality is not us, but it is God. And what he says is we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We put no confidence in the flesh. And we rejoice in Christ. God and his word are our point of reference. It is what gives us clarity. 
because of the gospel. So let us, as the confessions say, avail ourselves to the means of grace. The strength is the fruit of joy. Falsehood is the enemy of joy. But the power of joy, the power that we can have is only in Jesus Christ. He is our solid rock. When things around our life give way, Jesus is our only hope and stay. And that is why we can rejoice. That is why even when there is falsehood, our trust and dependence is found in him and him alone. When we are tempted to view ourselves how others view us, when we are availed by falsehood, let us hang on to the truth that is found in Christ alone. Let us put no confidence in the flesh, but boast in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we look to you, the one who brings us joy, the one in whom we delight. And we turn to you, Lord, help us to see clearly. Help us to see through the lens of your word. Help us to not fill our lives and our minds with things that do not profit us, but help us to look to you. And in so doing, also be able to enjoy your created world, but to not worship the created things. That we would worship you and you alone. That we would continue to grow in loving and serving one another and in looking to you. That we may be comforted in knowing that it is what you say about us that matters. That even if all things turn away, that even if we are under tremendous pressure or internal tension, that even if sometimes we are filled with doubts and worries, that you are our hope and our stay, that you are the one in whom we fix our eyes, that you are the one in, in whom we boast and in whom we glory, that you are our God. And so we trust in you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.